Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, leading people into the Christ-centered life. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Good morning. We're going to be in John chapter 1 today. You can grab your Bibles and meet me there. Gospel of John chapter 1, page 1062 in the Pew Bible if you're using that one. I'm going to show you a short video clip here just as we are turning to our Bibles. Uh, we'll explain it a little bit afterwards. Take a look up here on the screen. Do you just want to watch the rest of that instead of preaching this morning? We just finished the movie. So spoiler alert, if you have not seen the 30-year-old movie, uh, it turns out Darth Vader is in fact the father of Luke Skywalker, if you didn't know that. The villain actually turns out to be the father of the hero uh, who was an orphan. And so we or thought he was an orphan, obviously. Uh, and I show you that because there is something deep within us. There is something in that video clip that's almost primal. Uh, of, of needing to know, wanting to know where we come from. And in that clip, that was a game changer, obviously, to how Luke saw himself and how the whole story goes. But there is something within us that just needs to know where are we from and what are our roots and what is our background. And there is something when we know what that is that is very comforting. And if we don't know what that is, we can have a lot of uncertainty in life. And when you read the Bible, so often what God does with his people is tell them this is who you are and this is where you're from. This is the journey you have been on. This is the history of the people of Israel. He's telling them constantly uh, what their roots are and who they are because so much of our identity is wrapped up in where we come from. And so we're starting a new series today. It's going to take us through the summer, and we've just decided to call it Roots. Uh, we're going to talk about who we are as an Anabaptist church. Uh, there are many different streams of Christianity, and we do not claim that we are right and others are wrong by any stretch, but there are just lots of different branches of the church, and we are part of the branch called Anabaptism, and uh, that is what we are as Mennonite brethren. And there's many other parts of Anabaptism, you know, Amish and other Mennonites and uh, Hutterites and different branches of the church shoot off from that. But we are Anabaptist, and we'll talk a little bit about some of that history this morning. And we're just going to take a few weeks to talk about what exactly does that mean? Because the different branches of the church generally believe the same stuff on the big things, like who Jesus is and the Bible and the Trinity and things like that. But each branch just has a bit of a different emphasis. They look at God's Word, and they choose to highlight certain things that are a little bit different, maybe, than what other churches would highlight. Again, not right or wrong, but just a different emphasis. And so as we look at Anabaptism, we're going to talk about what does the Anabaptist branch emphasize? What is important? What are the roots of this and, and the things that we believe? And I personally am actually pretty late to the Anabaptist party. I grew up in the Pentecostal church, which is a Protestant church. I know many of you are coming from Baptist and different branches of the Protestant church as well. Some of you have grown up Anabaptist and it's in your blood for generations and generations. And so we thought it would be important, just as Mesh and I were talking and praying about what the next series would be, uh, just because some of us are newer and because even those of us who've been in it for a while uh, could use the reminder of it, we're just going to talk about what makes us Anabaptists. What is the emphasis there and what are the things that they choose to emphasize? So we'll be doing that for the next number of weeks. Let's talk about our text this morning. Let's take a look at that. We're in John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now let's jump down to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So that's often a Christmas verse. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we're going to spend a bit of time unpacking that today. But there's this picture of the Word that John uses when he starts his gospel. John 1, chapter 1, verse 1, and John starts talking about the Word. And it's not until we kind of get through the passage that we realize, oh, the Word is who? Right, the word is Jesus. This is not, he's not talking about the word, the Bible. He's talking about Jesus, and he uses this picture of Jesus as the word to tell us something about Jesus and to tell us something about God's word, which we'll get into. But John starts off his gospel with this, this uh, just strong statement. If you read Mark's gospel, Mark doesn't sort of as boldly talk about Jesus being God. He kind of hints at it here or there. It's a bit more subtle. But when John starts his gospel, just so there's no confusion, he just starts off, this is who Jesus is, just to be clear. Uh, Jesus is the Word, and the Word has been since the beginning, and the Word has always been here, and the Word is God, and yet the Son is also distinct from God. And so he starts really getting into some of the theology of who Jesus is. And as he talks about Jesus as the Word, he's giving us a very uh, important understanding of God's Word, and an important understanding of who Jesus is, which we'll get to. So, if I had not been a preacher, I would have been a history teacher. I've told you that before, and so you're getting a history lesson this morning. Congratulations. I hope you like history. Every once in a while, you get to let me live out my missed opportunities in life. And so we're going to talk a little bit about where the Anabaptists come from. So Jesus comes to earth. He dies. He rises from the dead. He returns to heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit. And there is one church for a long time. Lots of different congregations, but one denomination. There are not splits and divisions. There is basically one church, and they follow after the apostles. And when the apostles pass away, they follow the next generation of leaders. And when they pass away, they follow the next generation. But there's just one church. There's not all these different streams and branches of Christianity. And that is the case for about a thousand years. And about a thousand years in, the first split happens. Uh, and within that one church, there was divisions, and sort of all of Europe uh, was kind of becoming Christian nations, and Asia was becoming Christian, and there was a lot of infighting, and a lot of it had to do with politics of nations and kings and different things. So the church splits in half east and west. It's the first split in church history, the first major one. And the eastern church becomes the Orthodox church, which is still uh, thriving today, and the western church becomes the Roman Catholic church. And so that's the first kind of major division. And we're going to focus on the Roman Catholic Church because we are part of the Western Church just because we're on the Western side of the world. And so there is one Western Church. It is the Roman Catholic Church and it is ruled over by the Pope uh, and bishops. And as we move into the 1500s, 1400s and 
1800s, what happens as, is the church begins to get very wrapped up in worldly politics, in war, in wealth accumulation, uh, in all sorts of things that are going on. There is one pope at the top of the church. The pope's word is considered infallible. It's considered equal to the word of God. And when that happens, and when you have a pope who's trying to win the favor of kings and queens and trying to get wealthier, uh, things begin to go off the rails. Because the Pope can then just say, well, in the name of Jesus, every nation on earth needs to give us 20% of their income. God told me to say that. And in the name of Jesus, if you want to be king, I'm the one who gets to crown the, po the different kings and queens. So if you really want to be king, then you have to give me troops to support my, my Vatican City and the war that I want to wage. And so things begin to go off the rails. And as the church gets wealthier and more political, it becomes more and more worldly. And it gets further and further away from the word of God. And uh, this corruption begins to seep into even the theology of what's being taught, where they begin to say things like, uh, if you have a loved one who's passed away, and you're worried that they went to hell, give us a generous donation, and we'll have a priest say a special blessing that'll pop them out of hell and right up to heaven. And I don't know how they ever proved that when they were collecting all these payments. But that's just the sign. Those were called indulgences. And that's just, that's the sort of the classic example of how corrupt the church had become at that time. How far away from God's word they had, they had come. Uh, and all involved in warfare and, and killing in the name of Jesus and all sorts of stuff. And so the church, as we head into the 1500s, the Western Roman Catholic Church is not in a good place. And then what happens is there are some Catholic priests uh, who begin to actually read their Bible. Imagine that. Uh, and they be actually begin to read it in depth, and they begin to study it, and they begin to compare notes with each other, and they begin to say, wait a minute, where did this whole idea of a pope even come from? We don't actually see this in the Bible anywhere. Where did this idea of indulgences where you could pay for someone's salvation? That's actually pretty anti-biblical. Where did this idea that the church should wage war, where did that, like, we don't see any of these things in the Bible anywhere and so they began to challenge the Catholic Church, and they began to write pamphlets, and they began to uh, have debates, and Martin Luther famously uh, hammered a list on the door of the Wittenberg Church saying, here's 95 things that I find wrong with what the Catholic Church is doing. Let's have a discussion about that. And as you can imagine, that does not go well with the power-hungry, corrupt Catholic Church. And yet this movement, which starts off very grassroots, begins to build momentum. And churches kind of begin to switch over. Uh, and this whole season of life in the church we call the Reformation. Because they were looking to reform the Catholic Church. They weren't trying to start a new church. They were trying to fix the church that was already there. And so these guys begin to, uh, as they begin to spread the word, and as churches begin to get a hold of it, um, this thing that began as a protest movement against the Catholic Church, they began to be called protests or Protestants. Uh, that's where that name came from. They were protesting against the corruption that they saw. And so churches actually begin to defect. They begin to switch over. We're not Catholic anymore. We're Protestant. And then eventually entire nations begin to align with one side or the other. And they begin to say, you know, France and Spain and Italy say we are Catholic. We are faithful to the Catholic Church. And then Germany and Switzerland and others begin to say, no, we are Protestant and we are going that way. Uh, and it begins to kind of divide Europe along these religious lines with those who are remaining faithful to the Catholic Church and those who are embracing this new thing. The Protestant movement uh, focused on five things. This is in Latin, which I know we all speak really well. Uh, it's a very live language. Uh, sola gratia, which means saved by grace alone. 
Sola fide, which means we're saved through faith alone. Solus Christus, through Christ alone. Sola Scriptura, through Scripture alone. And Soli Deo Gloria, which is the glory of God alone. And so these were kind of the five key elements of the protest movement. These were the things that as they read their Bible, they felt the Catholic Church had gotten so far away from these things where it was uh, all about the church and all about church tradition and you couldn't be saved unless you were a member of the Catholic Church and the Pope's word was supreme and church tradition was was supreme and you got to heaven not because of what Jesus did in the Catholic Church at the time but you got to heaven based on things like how much money you gave to the Catholic Church how many acts of service you gave to the Catholic Church and so as the Protestants read their Bible they said we don't see any of that there what we see is a gospel that sola gratia grace alone we're saved because God is gracious not because we earn it we're saved by faith in Jesus not because we give money to the church we're saved through what Jesus did solus Christus on the cross. He saves us. We can't save ourselves by what we do. We need a Savior to come and save us. Sola Scriptura, we don't follow ultimately earthly leaders. We honor our leaders, but it's not the Pope's word that is final. It's not a church council's word that is final. The word of God is the final authority on everything we need in this Christian life. And we don't do it for the glory of a church. We don't do it for the glory of a Pope. Soli Deo Gloria. We do it for the glory of God. Our attention should be there. And this all might sound like common sense, but this was a big deal in the 1500s when this all broke out. When there was only one church, and you've been told your whole life, you trust that church, you trust the bishops, you trust the pope, you trust church tradition. For these guys to come along and say, actually, we see a total shift. It was a resurgence of, really, the gospel. How are we saved? It was a resurgence of scripture as the place of authority for the church, and it was a resurgence of focusing on God and not man. This is the Protestant Reformation. This was the change that was happening. And Protestants, when they started preaching this, began to get slaughtered by Catholics like crazy. Like burned at the stake, uh, heads cut off. It was not a good proud season in church history. And so the Protestants are persecuted like crazy, but then they begin to actually become more popular, and then as nations and kings begin to align with them, uh, some of that persecution stops, and Protestantism spreads a little bit more. And within the Protestant movement, there were groups of people, uh, starting in Switzerland, who began to gather in houses, and they began to study their Bible, and they began to look into these things, and they said, we absolutely agree with those five solas that we just read. We absolutely are on board. Yes, we're saved because of Jesus. Yes, the Bible is the ultimate authority. We believe in all of these things. But as they read their Bible more and more, they began to say, we actually don't think the Protestants are going far enough in these changes. We actually don't think they've got the whole picture here. They've started something really good, but it hasn't gone far enough. And these ones became known in the Reformation as the radical reformers. And so the stereotype of the Anabaptists and the Mennonites is that uh, I know when I came here to interview for the job, a couple of the leaders wanted to say, now what do you think of Mennonites? Like, what's your impression of us? Because we do have electricity, just to be clear. And so there is this picture maybe of of Mennonites or Anabaptists as sort of super conservative and maybe old-fashioned and whatever. Uh, But in its roots, it was the most radical thing on the planet at the time. So much so that when they began to have these Bible studies and say, we want to take the Protestant Reformation even further, guess who hated that? Protestant people. And the ones who had just been slaughtered by the Catholics begin to slaughter the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists believe in nonviolence, so that's not a fair fight. And so the Anabaptists begin to gather and say, 
you know, the Protestant movement started something good, but there's a lot of the Catholic influence still in the Protestant church. There's a lot of church hierarchy, uh, even in the new Protestant church. There's a lot of uh, warfare happening in the name of Protestantism. There's a lot of those things happening. And so as they are reading their Bibles in these Bible studies, they're saying, look, let's really get back to the teachings of the word. And let's especially look at the teachings of Jesus, because if we're followers of Christ, then our lives should probably look something like Christ. And so we're going to look at what Jesus said, and we're going to look at what the apostles taught. And so one of the things that they kind of landed on was a difference of opinion on baptism. So in the Catholic Church and in the early Protestant Church, you were baptized as an infant. Uh, And there was an, an understanding at the time that, you know, we want everybody to be saved and a follower of Jesus. And so the best way to ensure that is to baptize kids right away, and then they're just Christian for life. And then we don't ever have to worry about them again. And then they'll go to heaven if anything happens, and then they belong to Jesus, and we don't have to worry about them evermore. They'll just be set for life. And the Anabaptists, as they're reading their Bibles, are saying, yeah, we actually don't see infant baptism anywhere in the Bible. Anytime we see baptism in the Bible, it's because a person has made a decision to follow Jesus, and baptism becomes the symbol of that decision. It becomes the ceremony celebrating that decision. When Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches the first message of the Christian church, he says to the people, repent and be baptized into the name of the Lord. And repent means acknowledge your sin and turn away from it. And they're saying, well, a baby can't do that. A baby is not turning away. They're not saying, you know what, the last four days I've been really sinful, but I've got to turn my life around now. We're saying it's a parent's faith that causes a baby to get baptized. And so baptism in the Bible, when we actually read the Bible, uh, is something that you choose. And so we shouldn't be doing infant baptism anymore. And even the Protestants didn't like that. They had kept that tradition. And part of the reason was when you were baptized, you weren't just baptized into the name of the Lord. You were baptized into whatever nation you were born in. That was your citizenship ceremony. So you were baptized into the Catholic Church in France, and as you were baptized, you also became a citizen of France in that moment. And part of being a citizen of France was that you paid taxes and that you would serve in the army if you were drafted and all of those things. And so when the Anabaptists are saying, we don't believe in infant baptism anymore, it's not just bucking the religious trends, it's bucking the cultural trends of the nation. And in the eyes of the state at that time, you were essentially saying, we don't want to be a citizen of your country And so that was a big deal as well. And so the Anabaptists said, well, you know what? We've been all about this sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the authority. We have to be faithful to Scripture. And so they began to get baptized again as adults. They said, you know what? Our infant baptism into the Catholic Church, that really doesn't count when we read what baptism is in the Bible. That wasn't a real baptism. So we need to take this step now as followers of Jesus. And so they began to get baptized as adults. And again, it's hard to imagine how controversial that was in this day and age. But it was unbelievably controversial. And people saddled them with the nickname the rebaptizers or the rebaptized. Right? You're getting baptized again. And it was kind of a negative thing that their critics put on them. And they always fought against it. They didn't love the term because they said it's not a rebaptism. The first one didn't count. This is our real baptism as adults. This is the one that Jesus calls us to. But the name stuck. And that name uh, in the language of the time was Anabaptist. That's what the word means. Anabaptist means the rebaptized. And that stuck. And that became kind of the, the name that stuck to the whole movement. And so the Western Church has now split. Uh, Not just Roman Catholic and Protestant, but the Anabaptist movement starts as kind of its own thing. 
Some scholars say the Anabaptist stream is not really its own stream. It's part of the Protestant movement. But the Anabaptists say, yeah, remember the Protestants killed a whole bunch of us back then? We'll be our own thing. Thank you very much. We are not really a part of that, even though a lot of the theology was the same. So from the beginning, the Anabaptists have loved this of the five sola, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Uh, The Anabaptists have held a high view of the Bible from the very beginning, all about the Word of God. Everything needs to be in line with the Word of God. We measure our lives against the Word of God. We build our church and our structure comparing it to the Word of God. The Word of God is God's revelation of who He is. It is the standard of what He is looking for from us. It is this revelation from God, of God, for us, written down. And it is the final word on anything we do, on anything we teach. Anabaptists have always held to that. 2 Timothy 3.6 that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This comes from God. Anabaptists have always believed. And, and for them, this was the best part of the Protestant Reformation, is back to the Word, back to the Bible. Um, the Bible being the Word of God and the Bible containing what we need to follow after Jesus. But that is not it, because the Anabaptists said, yes, the Bible uh, is the Word of God, but there was another wrinkle to this. There was another level, and it comes from the passage that we just read, that Jesus is also called the Word of God. The Word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. John chapter 1, verse 14. So the Bible is the word of God, but John says Jesus is also called the word of God. And the Anabaptists said, so let's live in that, let's think about that a little bit. That the Bible is the written revelation of what God wants. It's the written revelation of who God is. It is the written revelation of God's holy standards and his requirements. It's the written revelation of the gospel and the way to heaven. The Bible is the written revelation of God, but Jesus is the living revelation of God. The Bible is the written word of God. Jesus is the living word of God. Jesus is God's word in the flesh. It is God's word personified. The Bible is the written revelation, but Jesus is what that revelation looks like when it's lived out perfectly in a human life. Jesus gives the whole thing context. Because Jesus walked this earth, and he spoke what he spoke, and he did what he did. Jesus is what God's written word looks like when it's lived out perfectly in a human being. And so Jesus is also a revelation of God that comes from God. Jesus is the living embodiment of God's word. And so the Anabaptists from the beginning said, let's be all about that. Let's be all about the Bible, but not just the Bible on its own, because the Bible is the Word of God, but Jesus is also the Word of God. And so we're going to be all about Jesus. And that might sound really obvious, but that was not really the way things were going. And so where the Protestant Reformation was all about recapturing the gospel and recapturing the place of scripture and recapturing the nature of church, when the Anabaptists started their movement, they recaptured Jesus as the center and said, this is all about Jesus. He is the most important part uh, of what is going on here. And, and all of Scripture is there, Jesus said, to point to me. The Scripture is not an end on its own. The point of Scripture is not just to get good at understanding Scripture. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you guys are scriptural experts, but you're missing out on me. The Scripture is there, Jesus said, to point you to me. The Scripture is there to lead you to me. 
and that you would come to me and that you would have life. And so we need scripture desperately then, obviously. We need the written word to show us who Jesus is and to reveal Jesus to us. But then we actually follow Jesus because Jesus is Lord. The Bible's the revelation of God, but Jesus is Lord. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So in the past, God spoke through Moses, spoke through Isaiah, spoke through Jeremiah. That is still God's word. Jesus never dismisses the Old Testament at all. But in the past, God spoke through these prophets. But the implication is now God is speaking to us in a new way, and that is through Jesus. It doesn't discount the old way, but Jesus is a better and a clearer picture of what God wants of us because Jesus actually is God in the flesh. And so we honor all of God's word. But the next verse in Hebrews chapter 1 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The Son is the exact representation of God's being. So if we want to know what God is like, we don't actually need to look any further than Jesus Christ. And we can see God through all of Scripture, but Jesus is the clearest and easiest way for us to understand who God is, the exact representation of his being. And so God's written word is all inspired. We trust it all, but we hold to Jesus as the living word of God. And because of that, when we call ourselves Christ-centered, that's going to change everything in how we approach our life, if Jesus really is the center of that, including how we read the Bible. The fancy Bible college term is we believe in a Christocentric hermeneutic. Write it down. You'll need it at a dinner party sometime. It's going to come up. A Christocentric hermeneutic, which is a fancy way of saying a Christ-centered interpretive lens that we read the Bible through. We look at the whole Bible through Jesus. So as the Protestant Reformation happens, and as nations begin lining up with Catholic and Protestant, one of the things that starts to happen is the nations start to go to war with each other, sometimes over religious stuff. Sometimes it was just the normal stuff of politics and greed and, and power and everything, and they just used religion as a, a very easy way to get support. Right? we got to fight the Catholic heathens. Who's with us? And the people would come, and they'd go, and they'd fight. And these wars would happen. And so the Protestants had said, we're all about the Bible, and this is a good thing. But then what began to happen sometimes was the Protestants would say, hey, here's this passage in the book of Joshua, Old Testament, where Joshua goes into the Canaanite village, and he slaughters every man, woman, and child in there. Therefore, when we invade France, guess what we are biblically empowered to do? Let's go slaughter every man, woman, and child in the village that we see. Let's go into the Muslim lands and slaughter every man, woman, and child. It's in the Bible, guys. It's right there, chapter and verse. And the Anabaptists were standing up saying, whoa, 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 whoa. It's okay, that's in the Bible. We don't discount that. We got to wrestle through that. But we are going to look at everything in the Bible through the filter of Jesus. Because Jesus is the living word. Jesus is what God's word looks like when it is perfectly lived out. And so if there are times in the Bible that are hard to, to reconcile with others, and certainly there are. If there's passages in the Bible that are difficult, and certainly there are. If there's passages in the Bible that conflict with the teachings of Jesus, and you're holding them up against each other, the Anabaptist said, we're going to go with Jesus every single time. When those conflicts are there and when it's hard to understand. And it actually really simplifies everything. 
Because everything becomes about just Jesus. And how did Jesus teach and how did he live his life? And if there's an Old Testament verse, you know, randomly that says, go kill everybody, uh, I'm not going to hold on to that as truth because Jesus then says later, love your enemies and put away your sword. And so we're going to go with Jesus on that one because Jesus is showing us the perfect way to live. He is the word personified, the living word of God. And so it makes everything easier. There was a trend in the 70s that continued on, and it it was so sort of overblown that it became cheesy, which is too bad, uh, where they sold cheap bracelets with four letters, WWJD, which stands for What Would Jesus Do? And again, it kind of got overdone and commercialized and everything. And it's too bad because that's still the question. That's really the question that matters for us as we follow after Jesus. What would Jesus do? And as we read the Bible, we look at it through the filter of what would Jesus do. And as we encounter uh, things in our lives where we're not sure which way to go, we ask ourselves that question, what would Jesus do? And as we wrestle through the tough questions of life, it all comes back to Jesus, a Christ-centered view of the world where we say we are going to look to Jesus first and we're going to filter everything through him. Even God's word from start to finish, which we take as entirely inspired, we're going to filter it all through Jesus because Jesus is the word of God in the flesh. It is the one that we are looking to. I love this verse in John 1.18. Uh, wrapping up our passage today, John writes, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So we can't see God face-to-face as humans, the Bible says that, and yet in Jesus that gets shifted, that Jesus comes and now we actually we have seen God. We know what God sounds like. He sounds like Jesus. We know how God acts. He acts like Jesus. We know how God loves. He loves like Jesus. That it all becomes about Jesus, and we look at our lives through the filter of Jesus, and that's what it is to be Christ-centered. We center our lives around him, who he is, what he teaches, how he lived and modeled for us, and as followers of Jesus, we say, I'm going to be like that. That's what I am shooting for in my life. And we acknowledge that no one is doing this perfectly, but that's the center, that's the target, that's the goal. That's what we're modeling our life around. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done. We have an email address here at Meadowbrook that's called questions at meadowbrook.ca. And if you have any questions or comments, if you want to have any further discussion on the message today, uh, we're happy to have that conversation. We're happy to grab a coffee. We're happy to keep the conversation going. So today's message was called The Word Written and Living. And so we love God's Word written down. We love the written revelation of God. Uh, We take the Bible very seriously here, and Anabaptists always have. That the written revelation is the ruler, it is the authority, it is the, the final word on everything that we need to know. And so we honor the written word, we revere the written word, we we feed on the written word, we digest the written word, we take it in, and and we we need it. We can't do anything without it. And so we need the written word of God, but the written word of God is there to point us to the living word of God, who is a person whose name is Jesus. It is there to help us in our walk with Jesus and to show him to us. So we revere the Bible and we learn from it and we study it, but we follow Jesus. We follow him and we center our lives around him. And we want to worship him a little bit more just before we close briefly. So would you stand to your feet with me, please, as we get ready to close today?
You know, we live in a generation called the HGTV generation, where we're about remodeling and doing renovations at our homes, and those things are all good. And oftentimes, when we do renovations, we have a central point, a central figure or area in our home that's the focal point. And often, when we think about that, that's the area we want to hang out with and focus on. And Pastor Chris asked the question this morning about being Christ-centered. And as we think about being Christ-centered, that should be all focal point, where we put our energy and our time professionally and personally and relationships and all those things and that's what it means to live christ-centered it's something where we ask jesus to be the central focus of our life in everything we say and everything we do and you combine that with the word of god and that's the journey of what it means to be a christ follower combining those things together as it's life-giving gives us wisdom and clarity in the life that we are living today so it's an encouragement a challenge to remind us all including myself this week that we live in such a way that Christ is a central part of our life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we can come together, we can celebrate you, that we can look at our heritage, and we can point back to you, Jesus, because it's about you. And all the glory would go back to you. Thank you for this church and the roots that are here. And we ask, Jesus, that you continue to build this church into what you want it to be, the lighthouse in this community for your kingdom. And God, I pray that as we go into our week this coming up, that you would help us focus on you, Jesus, to put you central in our life. And if there's things that are in the way of that, help us, Jesus, to remove them. And so we can focus on you to live fully for you. And as we dive into your word and we learn about you through that, I pray, Jesus, the power of your Holy Spirit would illuminate your scripture to us. And we walk tandemly with you, Jesus, and your word as you lead us in this life. Thank you for each one. I pray for a powerful week in the name of Jesus, that you would give us the words to say, the eyes to see, and the ears to hear as we continue to work together as a community to build your kingdom here at Meadowbrook, all around the city as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you come this morning, you need to pray with somebody or talk. Some of us will be available. If you're not coming up, it's all good. Have a great week.